Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from the first book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. text message was short and to the point. It simply said, I got chosen. And that's what we're going to celebrate today. Grammarians might have some concern with that wording, but we're celebrating today that we got chosen. Chosen for what? Context, anyone? Well, the text message last Tuesday at 12.17 p.m., was from Pastor Joey. Now, I had learned from him Monday, late afternoon, early evening, that he had to report on Tuesday morning for jury duty at 8 a.m., thus putting his entire schedule for the day Tuesday, and perhaps for the whole week, who knows how long this trial might last, in jeopardy. But I boldly prophesied on Monday and texted back to him, no worry, you won't be chosen because pastors don't get chosen for juries. We fall, you see, to the extremes of justice or mercy. We're unbalanced, opinionated. Our objectivity is clouded, which, of course, is not true at all, but that's the stereotype. So either the prosecution or the defense will make sure you don't get chosen. And you should be in the office by noon on Tuesday, no problem. But I was wrong. Pastor Joey was chosen. In fact, he was further chosen as the foreman of the jury. (laughs) Why was I not surprised? And he had the case wrapped up by midnight. So it wasn't too bad. 
Today we're going to think not about being chosen to serve on a jury, but chosen by God for something of infinitely greater significance from Ephesians 1 in the series Greater. We're going to look today at the God who chooses. Pastor Jeff started this brief series uh, last Sunday from the first chapter of this first century letter written by a man named Paul to the ancient uh, city of Ephesus to a church that had been established there. It was a major city of that today. Today it's an archaeological ruins. It's a tourist destination. I had a, a chance to, to go through it once very quickly. I'd love to go back, but it's in modern Turkey just off the Aegean Sea coast. Now, Jeff was scheduled to preach again today, but as he mentioned last week, uh, his mother is failing in health. Um, she's hanging in there. Just received a report last night, but uh, continues to fail and uh, don't probably expect her to be with us much longer. Anyway, I urged him to uh, make other plans, and uh, I was called in from the bullpen to uh, preach today. Today's focus is verses 3 and 4, but we must keep in mind the larger context of verses 3 to 14. The ESV section heading, this is not part of the inspired text, but it's a heading that helps to kind of divide things out, is spiritual blessings in Christ. Beginning with verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that doesn't end the sentence. In fact, while the NIV puts a period after it and, and makes more sentences out of it, and the ESV does the same, putting a period at the end of verse 4. The Greek sentence begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 14. It's 12 verses long. The sentence is 202 Greek words, 19 verb forms, 9 participles, 3 infinitives. One German scholar 100 years ago caustically called this the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I've ever found in the Greek language. That was Paul. That's the way he wrote. This isn't the only sentence in, in, in Ephesians like that. The very next sentence is nine verses long. It's his prayer. Eight extra-long sentences scattered through the letter, two of 12 verses, one of nine verses, two of seven, and three of six verses. Three of those very long sentences are prayers. When I think about it, you know, it seems to me that prayers don't always fit the normal sentence structure or normal conversation pattern. We, we find ourselves in prayer sometimes piling phrase upon phrase, clause upon clause, um, praising God, petitioning God. We, we pray a little differently than we speak at times. I, I see this in Paul as, as he gets caught up in ecstasy. It's, it's a thoughtful ecstasy. It's not a mindless ecstasy. But it's a thoughtful ecstasy as he celebrates these great thoughts and he praises his great God, the, the greatest things of God, but, but, but praising the infinitely great God who blesses us so that we're the richest people in the world. You believe that as a Christian? You're the richest people in the world. And this text proves it. 
Blessed or praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our lavish God, whom Tim Keller calls the prodigal God, by the way, prodigal son does not mean the sinful son. You know what the word prodigal means? It means extravagant. It can have negative or positive connotations. It can mean immoderate. It can mean prodigious, over the top. Prodigal son was over the top in his sin. Prodigal God is over the top in his grace, in his gifts. Who has blessed us. Zoom in with me on verse 3. And get a sense of what Paul is saying about this extravagant, prodigious God. Let's just do a simple inductive study of the verse, which means ask questions of the verse and and dig out the answers. What is here and what does it tell us about God? Now, Pastor Jeff introduced the concept of blessing last Sunday and, and used some descriptive words and phrases to help us understand what blessing is. He referred to the blessing of life and goodness and joy... He described the blessing as to experience the fullness of life. The Hebrew shalom uh, best describes this sense of well-being or or blessing, completeness, soundness, well-being, wholeness. When you cross the state line from Iowa or Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, or I guess that's all the states around Nebraska, six of them, You're always met with a sign that says, Welcome to Nebraska, the good life. The good life. But here is an infinitely greater life. I've been to Nebraska. I used to live there. I know. It's a good life, but not compared to this. So let's look at this good life. Let's let's start with the word blessing as defined that way and and see what Paul builds around it. Number one, I'm going to ask five or six questions. Who is blessed? Well, it's us. (laughs) Those who first received the letter, the the saints, verses 1 and 2. And Jeff explained that saints are not super Christians, but all true believers. Us, we, and you are found 14 times in this long sentence, making it clear to, uh, that Paul and his readers and all believers in Jesus are the beneficiaries of this blessing, the greatest wealth in the world. So this is for us, if we're believers of Christ. Who blesses? What what is the source of the blessing? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us. The subject of all the action is God. The subject of all the action is God in verses 3 to 14. This is what God does out of who he is. The initial focus is on God the Father, but as you read through the passage, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully involved. Number three, why does God bless Well, God is acting according to his character and will. Verse 4, in love. Verse 5, in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
Verse 6, which he has freely given us, this prodigal, prodigious God, freely given us, in accordance, verse 7, with the riches of God's grace. Verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, according to his good pleasure. Verse 11, in conformity with the purpose of his will. All of these gifts, all these riches are from God out of his love and grace and pleasure and perfect wisdom and will freely given to us out of the riches of God's grace. God is the source These gifts are from God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Number four, what kind of blessings? Well, they're spiritual blessings. Verse uh, 3 says it's in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, I used to say spiritual, not material which could be very misleading, so I just want to clarify that a bit. Uh, The spiritual is not a denial of material blessing, both now in terms of daily food and shelter and clothing, or then in the new heavens and the new earth, which is very material. You see, one of the, the reason this is important is one of the tenets of some of the earliest cults and so common in Eastern religion all over the world, is a negative view of the body, leading to either neglect and abuse of the body as if the body is a bad thing. Wait a minute, God created the body. It's good. But neglecting and and abusing of it as if it's bad, or unrestrained sin with the body as, well, the body doesn't have a future anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. Both views are tragically wrong. We do have a material future with resurrected material bodies and a material in a material new heaven and new earth. It's a wonderful promise. Revelation 21 describes a very physical and material future in heaven. And then secondly, it does matter what we do with our bodies to care for it, but not use it for evil because spirit and body, oh yes, they're separated at death until the resurrection when they come back together. Spirit and body are bound together and we cannot separate physical actions from spiritual impact. Never forget that. You cannot separate physical actions from spiritual impact. But the focus of our, with that clarification, the focus of our wealth here is spiritual blessings, that is the things of the Spirit. The riches described in Ephesians 1 and on through the rest of the letter have to do with relationships primarily, our relationships with God primarily and then with each other. Jesus drew this distinction when he said, do not stay, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Ephesians 1 is describing riches, incredible riches that last forever, that can't be taken from you and certainly can't be measured in houses, cars, rings, necklaces, dollars, stocks, gold, silver, jewels, retirement accounts, or real estate holdings. These are spiritual blessings. What's so sad about that is we have our moments and we're, we, we, we might seem to be, or at least our, our actions show that we might be a little disappointed about that. 
Because truth be known, our hearts are still set on material blessing much of the time, more than spiritual blessing, and we're still dedicating our lives so much to material gain more than spiritual gain. And we just have to ask ourselves, what kind of wisdom is that to put a higher value or even a comparable value on things that rust out, wear out, get eaten, get stolen, and you can't take with you? Or to borrow Jim Elliott's famous line, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. True riches that last are the spiritual riches. Number five, where are these blessings found? See that little phrase in the middle of verse three, in Christ? Uh, Jeff did a great job of highlighting that last week, uh, but it's important enough, I just want to emphasize it again. It's in Christ, in him, in the beloved, found 11 times in 12 verses. The equivalent meaning found 164 times in Paul's letters, reminding us that every part of our salvation is provided by and mediated through Jesus Christ. He is central. What does it mean to be in Christ? Let's try that little word in with some other words. What are you in? Some of you are in business. Some of you are in medicine. Uh, you might like sports, so you might say, I'm really into baseball or football coming up, or I'm into music, or I'm into video games, or I'm in love. What, what's the idea that you get from that? Well, if you're really in something or into something, it means your life is dominated by it. It's what you invest your time and your resources in. You're really into it. I uh, shared an illustration with you about 12 and a half years ago. See if any of you remember it. It was in the old building before we moved in here. It was a Paris perfume company that ran an ad in an American magazine picturing a beautiful woman dancing inside of a perfume bottle. And the caption read, A woman does not put on my fragrance... She enters it. That's descriptive of what it means to be in Christ. It's not an external adornment, but an intimate relationship. And every bit of the spiritual wealth described here comes to us because and only because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Apart from him, you do not have these blessings. The condition is to be in him. The one who died on the cross was raised from the dead. Your part is to believe in him and receive him, to put your trust in him as Lord and Savior. And none of this wealth is available apart from and through a personal relationship with Jesus who said these offensive words, particularly today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't put himself out there as one of the options. He puts himself out there as the only one. Number six, what is the ultimate purpose of God's blessing? The first words of verse three provide the answer, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Even though we are the beneficiaries of great blessing, the focus is to be on God. Blessed is the Greek eulageo or eulogy. You know that word, don't you? It combines two words, good and word. What is a eulogy? It's a good word. It's usually a good word. It's the nice things you say about somebody at their funeral. That's a eulogy, a good word. However, this is not a eulogy for the dead, but for the eternal living God. So let's walk back through verse 3. The blessings come to us. The blessings come from God, from His love, His perfect will, His wisdom and understanding, His pleasure, His grace. The blessings are primarily spiritual. The blessings come to those who are in Christ. But the main point and purpose of laying all of this out before us, the primary thing here is blessed be or praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't forget He sticks it in three more times. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. That's the bottom line. That's the top line. (laughs) That's all the lines. The glory of God. That's why the big picture of our mission and vision at Faith Church is driven by this statement declaring the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and why in our core values the top one is to be God-centered. Oh, we're not fully there. We know that. That needs to be the priority. Now, over the next three weeks... uh, Before the Global Impact Conference in late September, Pastors Joey and Jeff will help us take inventory of these blessings that reflect on the greatness of God. And I'm not sure exactly what kind of emphasis they're going to have, but among these blessings that we've read this morning already are election and adoption and redemption and predestination and sanctification and preservation. And I'm going to take the first one as my second point today and the title of this sermon, our election the God who chooses. From verse 4, even as He, which is God, chose, exelexato from eklegemai, elected, the Greek word sounds quite a bit like the English word, elected, picked, chose, called out. He chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And here on the very first word, we're thrust into potentially, uh, or perhaps the the great controversy as, as the battle lines are drawn between Calvinists and Arminians, and we're too busy fighting with each other over some of these things that we don't have time to really focus on sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too busy attacking one another. I love the Evangelical Free Church of America, and it's not because I'm a big denomination guy, but I was drawn to this movement because of an emphasis on the essentials in our doctrine and a willingness to differ with one another, to disagree agreeably, to get along agreeably where we have differences in our understanding of theology and Scripture. Calvinists and Arminians are welcome here. 
And this has been a fascinating journey for me because of my own background. And, 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 and I don't believe exactly the way I did 50 years ago or 40 years ago or 30 years ago. I'm still in process. I haven't arrived at the final doctrinal paper. I was ordained 38 years ago, but I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still working at it. I'm still reading the Bible. I'm still trying to get better informed. It's been a lifelong journey from my Baptist church and Wesleyan home roots and then my seminary training that began to put a little bit more objective basis for these things and uh, most of all though my reading of the Bible from beginning to end more than 40 times. You got to continually see the big picture and see everything that God says in his word before you become too dogmatic about your pet doctrine. We have these contrasting emphases of Scripture, of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And no, if you're looking for me to help you fully synthesize these things, you're looking to the wrong place. I continue to work at it, try to understand it, struggle with it. But do I have it all figured out? No. So the challenge all along the way is to put down the sharp swords of our theological battles. I don't mean to put it, hide it and not talk about it. That's not what I mean at all. But take the edge off our emotion and the presuppositions behind our views and, and do our best to let the Bible inform and form our views instead of our preconceived interpretations. And to both sides of that, I say, are you forcing the Bible into matching with your theology? You see, we all have grids, every one of us. We have a grid that we put over everything we hear and read, and that includes the Bible. And the challenge is to let our grid be changed and shaped and formed by Scripture rather than not being able to see Scripture because we're looking through that clouded lens of our own presuppositions. Well, I'm not going to solve the controversy today. I'm still on my journey. I just want to walk you through this text. And this text puts one particular emphasis. And there are other texts that have to be brought into the discussion that have other emphases. So let's look at this one. The heart of verse 4, even as he, God, chose us. Like Joey was chosen for the jury so God has chosen us to be in his family, those who are believers in Christ. Feels good to be chosen, doesn't it? It hurts to not be chosen. Or to be chosen last, because the rule is everybody has to be chosen. Now, I think I shared this uh, a number of years ago as well and got some awes out of you, but uh, I'll take the risk again. I, I remember playground softball so well in elementary school. Two, two captains were chosen, usually the best players. I think it was Willard Wallace and Larry Bonds, not Barry Bonds, but Larry Bonds, a kid in, in my school. And they alternated picking their team and all the good players were chosen. And then there was that one unathletic boy that... Uh, was not chosen until the better girl athletes were chosen. This was co-ed softball in grade school. And then I got chosen. But I didn't feel chosen. 
I felt tolerated. I felt forced upon somebody. They put me in the outfield next to Mary and just hoped no one would hit the ball our direction because we probably wouldn't catch it, and then we'd have to chase after it, and then we'd throw it, and we'd overthrow it, and it wouldn't get into the infield, and it'd be a home run, uh, you know, a ground, a ground ball home run. You know, that's how it goes in that era. You would have thought that would have turned me against sports. But if you've been around for a few years, you know that's not true. I love sports. I I never was very good at any of them, but I decided to choose myself to improve myself and play ball with my little brother. We didn't need nine players. Two's enough. We didn't need an opposing team. All we needed was a pitcher and a catcher. And I was the older one and I was the boss, so I made Wes the catcher. And uh, he was risking his life back there, not because the balls were thrown that hard, but uh, just because where they might end up. But, I mean, I was, he was Yogi Berra. We didn't use that in those days, but I was Sandy Koufax. You're really old if you know who Sandy Koufax is. But I, I would... I would put him out here and out in the yard in the farm, and I would put him out there, and I would wind up, and I would throw a sidearm fastball. It probably uh, capped out at maybe 40 miles per hour. I have no idea. We didn't have a radar gun. But I was good. Nobody ever hit it. Well, there were no batters, so that helped. And we had great times. And then we played basketball. And uh, I, I couldn't choose myself for that, so I, Wes and I played for hours on the dirt with a homemade hoop and a net, and we played well into the dark, and so you couldn't even see the ball, whether it went through the, through the, the hoop or not, because there was no net, and uh, we kept playing into the dark, and I chose Wes to be what I could never be and do, play high school basketball. I did the same with my son, six and a half inches taller than me, so that helped his chances. But choosing myself, choosing my brother, choosing my son, it didn't, it didn't really make any difference. Oh, maybe a little encouragement in their case, or pressure, I don't know. In my case, it didn't get me to first base. It only got me out among the dandelions. So, so what, what are we talking about here? I can't choose myself for anything of importance. Now, what matters here is what God does. How, how did I get this salvation, this, this mother load of spiritual blessings? Did I, did I choose myself? Did I win an election among my peers? I, I have run for office, a high school youth group president, and, and a number of opportunities uh, within our our uh, district and, and denomination, and, and actually, I think it's interesting. I don't think I've ever lost an election. I think I've won them all. But, but, but that'll never get me there. God shows me that's what matters. Now, what does that mean that God shows me? <laughs> There's a lot of bad theology out there in an effort to simplify things. For example, I used to hear it this way. And if you're telling your kids this, stop. God votes for you. The devil votes against you. You have the deciding vote. 
What text did you get that from? It implies that Satan has the power to cancel out God as if he's God's equal and that we're really the ones left in charge to save ourselves. But if that's the case, we would never be saved. I'm not the sovereign in regard to my salvation. God is. He chose us. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there's a mystery here beyond my understanding about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Bible clearly teaches both. I must believe in Him. John 3.16, very simple. The Bible clearly teaches both sovereignty and responsibility, and the danger is that in embracing one truth, we reject the other, and I don't want to oversimplify this, nor am I solving it today, but for today, let's just savor the great blessing of election. God chose us. Next phrase, this election took place in Him. We're coming back to that term, in Christ loaded with so much, but essentially we're talking here about the death and resurrection of Jesus and all that comes, um, and all that comes from that, centrally our redemption, verse 7, our redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, and I think uh, one of the pastors will will come back to that verse. Uh, When did this election take place? This is fascinating. Before the foundation of the world, this is a prehistoric salvation. Before Genesis 1-1, before God created the heavens and the earth, before you existed, you weren't there to vote. God chose you for this salvation. Your salvation wasn't an afterthought. The eternal architect designed it before the sun and the stars shone and before a moon was created that periodically could eclipse the sun. It was before that. I can't get my mind around that. But I know it says something very powerful about God's love that he chose me before he made the world. And then finally... The purpose of this election is to bring radical change to your life that we may be, will be holy and blameless before him. You know, we are born unholy and guilty before God and therefore unacceptable to enter his presence, but he chose us to make us holy and blameless. This I think more than hints at the doctrine of justification, though that is not emphasized in this particular chapter, but that great doctrine that we are unholy and unrighteous, yet are declared or counted as righteous before God by faith in Christ. We call that justification by faith. Read Romans 3 and 4 and other texts where that is spelled out so gloriously And this fall as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of, of, the, of the Reformation, the rediscovery of justification by faith, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, on a practical level, though, it's not just a new position with God of justi- justified position and forgiveness of sins. It's a transformation, or it's not real. It's a transformation. 
it's not everything's resolved because at five years old, I prayed the sinner's prayer so I wouldn't go to hell. Now, that might have been your genuine transformation, and I believe it is for many. But it's also a possibility that a child's just doing what the adult wants him or her to do. The evidence is the transformed life. Now, some worry that this doctrine of election leads to an unholy life. If God has chosen me, then it doesn't matter what I do because I'm chosen. But that, again, fails to consider the results of genuine spiritual calling and election. The proof of that calling is evidence of radical conversion, which Jesus calls being born again. The theological term is regeneration. The dead become alive, Ephesians chapter 2 describes that. And that leads to a changed life of godly living. Paul states it this way in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined. What are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. And those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, And those he justified, he also glorified. God's election, God's choosing of you leads to a transformed life. Not perfection. That won't happen until we're with Christ. But true change. A life that progressively takes shape in godliness and holiness. Well, there's so much more to be said. What a privilege, what a privilege, what a blessed privilege to be able to open this passage before you today. May we embrace it. That is embrace with joy the God who chooses, who blesses, who chooses, who adopts, who redeems, who forgives, who leads us to believe in Jesus for his rich, rich salvation and then seals us with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. The application of a message like this, my friends, is not some practical, how do you do this on Monday morning to apply something you heard in a sermon. The application of this text, this whole section, to look to God in worship to praise him that's what this is about this is a praise passage blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him and keep reading through the rest of the sentence through verse 14 And notice along the way that repetition to the praise. This is the application to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you pray with me? We say with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone, 
For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. Oh, this passage, Lord, helps us to see you. And and if that's all it is, then we are damned forever. Because you are holy and perfect, and we are sinful by birth and by will, by decision, by action. No hope for us except for your calling, your election, your saving, your sending of the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us, to take our sin upon himself, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Oh God, we praise you that we do not have to go away from here today in terror that we are lost forever, but in Shalom, in peace, that Christ has taken our sin, that you have made us new, that you've given us eternal life, that you've made us your sons and daughters, and we can call you our Father. Thank you, O God. We rejoice in all these things. In the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen.